Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd go ahead and make your way back towards your seats. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here. So glad that you are with us this morning. Th thank you again, like woos are always appreciated. So if you're new with us this morning, I just wanted to say welcome, thrilled that you are here. Thankful that you chose to be with us this morning. Just wanted to encourage you, especially if you're new this morning, if this is your first time, um, Pastor Shaq, Kenny, or I, we would love to get to meet you after the service. We don't want you to just be a face in the crowd. We want you to be someone that we get to know by name, whose story we know and understand. We'd love to be able to take you out for coffee. We love coffee and sitting across from people and just talking together. So if you're here for the first time and I don't know you, you don't know me, I would love it if after the service you would just come up and talk to me and introduce yourself so that I could invite you out for coffee sometime over the next few weeks. Th thank you, Shaq. For... Shaq, you and I already know each other really well, so I'm happy to have coffee with you anytime. So this morning we're continuing in our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 this morning. And in Exodus chapter 5, we're going to see a few things together this morning. We're going to see that a new Pharaoh has risen to power. And this Pharaoh has perfected some of the ways in which the Israelite people are oppressed in Egypt. Things have grown worse in this sense for the Israelite people that Moses begins to rather imperfectly begin to try carrying out God's plan to liberate his people, that everything goes sideways, and then Moses has this moment of just desperation and confusion and frustration, and he confronts God in anger and demands to know why what's happening is happening. So let's pray together. And then we'll start into Exodus chapter 5. Father, thank you that we could be gathered together this morning, brothers and sisters, from across the city and across the neighborhood, lifting our voices to you, opening our hearts to you and to one another, being built into a community, a family. So Father, would you be with us now? Would you plant into our hearts the words that you want us to know and understand this morning. Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So Exodus 5 begins this way. Afterward. That's it. We're going to stop there for a moment. Because clearly, right, the word afterward indicates that in order for us to understand everything that's about to happen, we have to understand the context into which this story is taking place. So, before we move beyond the first word, here's what we need to know about what has happened in Exodus chapter 4. This was Moses' burning bush moment. As Pastor Shaq talked about last week, this moment where God in relationship makes himself known to Moses and invites Moses into God's plan to liberate his people. God's brought Moses' brother Aaron to Moses' side. Moses and Aaron have gone to the Israelite leaders in Egypt and shared with them what God had spoken to Moses. And the author of Exodus tells us right at the end of chapter four that the Israelite 
elders believe Moses, they believe God, and that they bowed down and worshiped. That's what's just happened when we get to Exodus chapter 5 and we start into this story. Moses has just had a mountaintop kind of experience. He's heard God directly. He's the first person ever that God reveals his name to. And then he goes to all of his fellow Israelites in Egypt and tells them, God wants to liberate you, and they believe him. And then they bow down and worship. The author of Exodus seems to want us to know that Moses is riding into this encounter with Pharaoh that he's about to have almost on a high, almost on this mountaintop. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. In verse 1, when Moses and Aaron make their first appeal to Pharaoh, this is what they say. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. It is an incredibly bold and courageous appeal that Moses and Aaron are making to Pharaoh. And... It is not what God told them to say. If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, God was very clear about what he wanted Moses and Aaron to say when they approached Pharaoh. They were supposed to say, you and the elders of Israel are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. You're a little further ahead than me, okay? So, so God tells Moses to take the elders of Israel with him. And if we read the story, it's just Moses and Aaron. The elders of Israel are not there. So from the very beginning, just even in his approach to Pharaoh, he's not quite doing exactly what God had said. The idea is that the elders of Israel were probably known to Pharaoh, that he would have known who some of them were. But Moses and Aaron show up, and he doesn't know them. He doesn't have 
relationship with them. The author of Exodus has told us that this is a new Pharaoh who didn't know Moses. And so Moses and Aaron show up unknown in Pharaoh's court when they were supposed to bring the Israelite elders with them. God instructed Moses to say, let us take, which is actually in the original Hebrew, a polite expression that in the original Hebrew is followed by a word that basically means please. God has instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh and basically ask kindly. And yet what Moses does, he does not speak kindly. He does not use language that includes the word please. And Moses was only supposed to request that the Israelites journey into the wilderness for three days to offer sacrifices to God. And instead, Moses demands the complete and total and immediate liberation of every Israelite person in Egypt. Needless to say, Pharaoh doesn't react real well. He doesn't appreciate Moses' authoritarian and almost absolute demand. Because Pharaoh responds in Exodus 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Moses arrives in Pharaoh's court as a prophet. He is speaking to Pharaoh, albeit imperfectly, the words that God has instructed him to speak. And Pharaoh's response is marked by arrogance and pride and hubris. We're not supposed to read this and hear Pharaoh saying, I've never heard of that God. What we're supposed to read and hear is Pharaoh saying, I don't care. Why should I listen to what your God says? I'm Pharaoh. I'm a God among the gods. Why is this God more powerful than me? Why is this God worth me listening to? And it's almost as though Moses doesn't even consider the potential reality that Pharaoh's going to say no. Because in verse 3, we hear Aaron and Moses like ask again. They reapproach and ask again. They say, and Jay, this is the slide, Exodus 5, 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. This is what God has instructed Moses to say. But it's not until his second attempt that he speaks the words that God wanted him to. And by the time he asks a second time, it's too late. Pharaoh's already started the work of hardening his heart, and he's defiantly rejected releasing any of the Israelite people. Now, it's worth noticing that Pharaoh's defiant rejection of God's demand, it is definitely an act of pride, arrogance, and hubris. It is also a pragmatic decision. Because by this point, the entire Egyptian economy is built on the foundation of Israelite slave labor. In verse 4, almost without shame, Pharaoh looks at Moses, 
who is representing the oppressed and enslaved people of Israel before Pharaoh's throne. And Pharaoh looks back at Moses and says, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. As far as Pharaoh's concerned, Moses is impeding the ability of all of Pharaoh's slaves to do their work. In other words, Moses' appeal is not just a threat to Pharaoh's pride, it's also a threat against the entire Egyptian economy. Because Moses has given all of the people on which the economy has been built hope that they might be set free, hope that they might not have to be enslaved in Israel for the remainder. Egypt for the remainder of their lives. And so Pharaoh understands that as long as, Mer- Fer- as long as Moses is in good standing with the Israelite people, as long as he is well respected by the Israelite people, there is a persistent and ongoing threat, not just to his kingship, but also to his economy and to the financial well-being of his country. And so Pharaoh, being a shrewd politician, knows that he has to respond swiftly and decisively. He needs to react and respond in a way that discredits Moses in the eyes of all the Israelite people. He needs to demonstrate to the Israelite people that Moses is not a person worth being followed. And he wastes no time. In verse 6, we read this. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, and notice this, the same way that Moses approached Pharaoh and said, thus says God, Pharaoh sends out his overseers and says, thus says Pharaoh. He's placing himself before the Israelites as the only God they should listen to and follow. He says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. Pharaoh has instituted this new policy, this harsher, harder policy, all in order to discredit and undermine Moses in the eyes of the Israelite people. Pharaoh's drawing a direct line by acting so quickly so that it's without question in the eyes of every Israelite person. This harsher treatment that we're now receiving, it's because of what Moses did. The reason we're now experiencing all of this, it's because of Moses. Now, I think we have to take a moment and just pause. I think we need to just have a moment together as a church and talk about this reality in the text. Because Pharaoh seems to believe that one of, if not the main reason, that the Israelites want to go into the desert to worship their God for three days is because they're lazy. 
He says it twice. In the same passage, he says it twice. That their laziness is the real reason that they want to go and worship their God. It is the language of an oppressor to look at a group of people experiencing a wild form of economic injustice. People who are working every day. People who are working in incredibly harsh conditions people who are enslaved, and to say to them, the reason you want to break is because you're lazy. And we have to hear the echoes of Pharaoh's words in our culture today. There are political and cultural leaders today who would look at the working class, women and men who work full-time jobs at minimum wage and live below the poverty line, these women and men who advocate and fight for better working conditions and better wages and benefits. And there are political and cultural leaders who would look at them and say, you're grumbling. You're not grateful. You're lazy. That language is the language of an oppressor. And we need to recognize it as such as people seeking to follow after God, as people who are living in this community and in this city and in this country, when we hear that kind of language, we need to recognize it for what it is. We need to hear it for what it is. It's a class of people who are totally okay having wealth and possessions if it means oppressing other people. We have to reject this notion. We have to reject the notion that people who work in poor conditions, who are underpaid, who are living in full-time poverty, we have to reject the assertion that they're crying out for justice because they're lazy. They are not. They are crying out for the kingdom of God to become a reality in their lives. We need to be, as a people, engaged in this work. Because I think we know in God's economy, it's not marked by scarcity, by, but by abundance. In God's economy, there's enough for everyone. We all get to participate. We all share in God's abundance. So, back to our story. By the time we get to verse 20 we see Pharaoh's plan to align the Israelites against Moses has succeeded. Verse 20 begins this way. When they, these are the Israelite leaders, left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelite leaders have gone directly to Pharaoh on their own. They have cut Moses out. At the beginning of chapter 5, they were happy to send Moses as their representative to Pharaoh to demand their liberation. But now that their working conditions are harder, they're taking matters into their own hands because they no longer trust Moses and his ability to lead them. His credibility has effectively been undermined by Pharaoh. 
At the end of chapter four, remember, these Israelite elders are celebrating Moses. They're believing what he says. They believe it so deeply that they bow down and they worship God. And here, at the end of chapter five, they are cursing him and asking God to bring judgment on him. And it's in verse 22 that Moses gives expression to his deep disappointment and confusion and frustration and pain. We're told, Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And this is where I want to settle for the rest of our time together. This is where I want our conversation to land this morning. This moment where Moses approaches God and cries out, Why? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? Because while I can't speak for your experiences growing up in church or the ways that you understand the ways that we as people are to relate to our God, but I'm not sure that we are actively taught that we can and should approach God and ask him why. That in the midst of our pain and confusion and frustration and disappointment, we're actually encouraged by our forefathers in the faith all throughout the scripture to approach God and not only just ask, Moses is demanding, why? Why did you appear to me and speak to me from that bush? Why did you tell me to go to Egypt to speak to the Israelite elders? Why did you send me back to my people with this message of liberation? Why did you send me into Pharaoh's court only for you to embarrass me? Only for you to not do a single thing that you said you were going to do? Not only am I a laughingstock now, God, all of my people who were already oppressed and enslaved are now enduring harsher conditions. Why did you do all of this? All of your people now believe that Pharaoh has won. They're not sure if you're trustworthy. Why did you do this? I've oftentimes heard people say, that we're not allowed to ask God why. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we don't get to know the why. And it is certainly true that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But it is not good biblical advice that we are not allowed or encouraged to go to God when we have acted in a way that is right and in accord with who he is and his will for our lives, and everything seems like it's falling apart, we can go to God and ask, why? So many of us have been encouraged to ask how and what questions. That instead of asking God why, because we'll never get that answer from God, 
We should ask how and what questions. How am I supposed to move forward from this? What am I supposed to do in light of this? Those are pragmatic questions. They have value, but they also seem to consider God a far-off God who's not cared about relating with us, who's not interested in being in relationship with us, who's not interested in revealing the deep ways that he wants to be at work in us and through us and for us. And so we're left as though God is just a taskmaster far off and says to us, you don't get to know why. I'll just tell you what you're supposed to do next. I'll give you a list of bullets. Just do these things and that's how you can move forward. About eight and a half years ago, um, my wife Julia's dad passed away very unexpectedly. He went for a run on his lunch break, he collapsed and died a few days later. And in the aftermath of that, I had several people, including pastors, tell me, you can't ask why. Stop asking why. You're not going to get an answer. Just ask what you're supposed to do now, how you're supposed to move forward. Eight and a half years later, and I recognized that was bad counsel. It was based on bad theological and biblical understanding. It was offered to me, and this, this is not in my notes. <laughs> it was offered to me by what I would now recognize as people who are orphans, who don't understand that they've been adopted, that they're daughters and sons, that they live in relationship, that they live as people, that the God of the universe, he doesn't just from a distance know the name, our names. He doesn't just from a distance know the number of hairs on our heads. He doesn't just from a distance know details about us. He knows the longings and yearnings of our heart. He wants to speak to those. And too often, we understand our faith. We understand our relationship with God almost as orphans who don't understand that the God of the universe is our Father who desperately desires relationship, who communicates belonging. And one of the ways that he do, does that is by taking the time to answer our questions, all of them, including why. All throughout Genesis and Exodus, we see a God who wants to be in relationship with people. He interacts with and talks with Adam. In the aftermath of Eve and Adam's sin that ruptures everything that we know about our world, God seeks them out in relationship. He talks with them. He covers over their shame. In Exodus, he speaks to Moses through a burning bush, and he tells Moses his name. He wants Moses to know him. He wants his people to know him. He even desires for Pharaoh to know him. The God that's revealed in Genesis and Exodus is not a God who is far off and distant and disinterested. He is a God who hears his people, responds to his people, seeks after his people, and desires to be intimately known by his people. God wants to be in relationship with us, church. 
He wants to talk with us. He wants to lead us and guide us. And Moses seems to know this. Because in verse 20, when we're told that Moses returned to the Lord, that language literally means that Moses went somewhere else. He left the city. He left the people. In his time of great confusion, he didn't turn to other people and ask them, what do you think I should do? Why do you think this is happening? He goes to God himself because he understands that God is one that he has relationship with and who will answer his questions. Who will take the time to meet with Moses and answer why? Did you know that in the Old Testament, Job asked why? That Elijah asked why? That Jeremiah asked why? And I'm sure you've heard the language, but have you paid attention to the fact that even Jesus asks why? That from the cross, even Jesus asks God why? When was the last time you experienced disappointment? When was the last time you experienced confusion? When you experienced frustration or pain? Now, to be clear, there's a distinction to make here. Even though Moses didn't do exactly what God had instructed him to, he didn't say exactly what God had instructed him to say to Pharaoh, there isn't some indication here that Moses has been sinful. He's experiencing these emotions because he did what God had instructed him to do. What he understand God to be leading him and inviting him to do, and it's all now falling apart. We don't get to ask God why our partner left us when we cheated on them. We don't get to ask God why we got fired from our job when we did something unethical. But when we have a miscarriage, when we married the person we believed we were supposed to and they were unfaithful to us, when we watch people that we love walk away from God, When a loved one dies, when a spiritual leader abuses their power and harms us, when we experience the effects of injustice or oppression or racism, we can approach God knowing that he wants to be in relationship with us. We can approach God and ask, why? The story in Exodus chapter 5, it seems to end in complete and abject failure. God, it seems, has been defeated. Moses has been discredited. And here we have Moses crying out to God. But in crying out to God, Moses positions himself to hear God reply. And in Exodus 6.1, God does reply. 
And in Exodus 6.1, we hear this. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you will see what I will do. You want to know why? The pain and confusion and frustration, you want to know why? Now you will see what I will do. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God hears Moses' question, why, and doesn't respond by saying, my ways are too high for you to understand. My thoughts are too high for you to make sense of. God hears his question, why, and he says, now you'll see what I will do. Now you will see my power and strength. Now you will see what I want to accomplish in you and through you and for you. God told Moses that the work would be hard. But God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh did that on his own. God didn't orchestrate the Israelites' oppression. Pharaoh did that all on his own. And in character for God, it is out of these realities that he begins to work his work of physical and spiritual liberation for his people. It is out of those realities that he begins the work that only he can begin to set his people free physically and spiritually. And I believe that if we're willing, despite our disappointment, despite our confusion, despite our frustration and pain, to ask God why and then wait, to really wait, we might just hear the God of the universe whispering back to us, now you will see what I will do. It's not to say that God's going to do exactly what we want him to do or think he should. It isn't necessarily to say that God's going to all of a sudden perform some supernatural miracle. It is to say that it is God's character made known to his people and to us through the story of Exodus that he will work, he will move, he will meet us, and he will invite us to know him more fully. On the cross, Jesus cried out to God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And while Jesus didn't receive an audible answer, God still provided one. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? And it's as though we can hear God whispering in that moment, now you will see what I will do. I'm about to raise you from the dead three days from now. I'm about, through the resurrection of your life, I'm about to set all of these people free spiritually for eternity. I'm about to tear the veil that separates me from you and be in relationship with you in a way that I've never been before and that each of you desperately need. I'm going to rescue you and redeem you and restore you, and you will be my daughters and sons in the midst of Jesus' own death, where it seems like even that story ends in complete and abject failure. We hear God whispering, now you will see what I will do. And I believe in our own lives in the midst of our own pain and frustration and confusion and disappointment, the God who is revealed to us in the scriptures is willing to answer our deepest questions. 
He's willing to answer why. So, I'm going to end by asking just a few questions that hopefully you'll take with you today, that you'll ponder at some point throughout the week. Where are you experiencing pain or frustration or disappointment or confusion? And will you risk asking God why? And then will you listen, no matter how long it takes, believing and trusting that he wants to answer that? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can be encouraged, hopefully, by this story. That you are a good God who is desperately in love with us, who wants to be invested and involved in our lives, who's not afraid of any question, who's willing to answer our questions. So, Father, as we continue on in worship, as we participate in communion together, as we receive our offering together, Father, would you continue to move and speak? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to receive communion together as a church family. I'm going to ask Eleanor to go ahead and come forward and lead us in this moment of communion.